This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hey, this is Mike Mooney. Dr. Karen and I are going to be talking about the differences between champions and challengers. We're going to be talking about what does DNA really stand for? And then the power of these four words, intentional action drives clarity. You're going to want to hear more. So tune in. Have you ever wondered what it's like to work at NASCAR or what happens behind the scenes in race car organizations. Today, you are in for a special treat as my guest knows all about those high-speed organizations and the lessons that are important for all of us to consider. So this is a part one of a two-part series or episode. So be sure to also look out for our upcoming second interview. Now, let me introduce you to my guest. It would be easy to say that Mike Mooney's career has been going in circles for more than 25 years in the high-speed world of professional motorsports. An award-winning executive, Mike built and protected the reputations for global brands such as Mercedes-Benz, 3M, NASCAR, Sunoco, Tylenol, Walmart, Sprint, Kellogg, and Eli Lilly. Having worked with championship drivers and teams for decades, Mike saw the power and results of continuous improvement, mindset, and peak performance. His breakthrough book, Reputation Shift, Lessons from Pit Road to the Boardroom, is a toolbox with ready-to-use personal branding strategies for people who want to create greater personal and professional opportunities in their lives. Welcome, Mike, to the Voice of Leadership, and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. I'm glad to have you here with me today. Dr. Karen, it is an absolute pleasure to be with you. I'm so excited about our time together today in this conversation. It's going to be great. Yes, looking forward to it. And you know, you have such an exciting and an illustrative sort of career in terms of the executive roles that you've had in the past. Now, I want to unpack some of those. I know that many people might be listening because they knew, but we're going to be talking about NASCAR today as one of the companies that you actually worked with. So what role did you have with NASCAR when people think of the organization, they think about the drivers, they think about the racetrack and racing around. They don't always know about the behind the scenes executive engine that makes the whole operation work. So what was your role? How did you add value? How did you make a difference? So that that is a great, a great question to ask because you're right. So many people think of when they see uh, the sports, professional sports in general, quite honestly, you know, that they look at the product, you know, on the racetrack or in the arena on the field and think that's what it is. However, 
there is an entire what we would call an ecosystem that is supporting the sport, right? So within NASCAR, there are agencies and there are corporate brands and there are the race teams, there's the media outlets and those channels, right? I mean, there's so many different places for people to be involved in the sport. So, so in my world, I was able to work with NASCAR uh, and other sanctioning bodies like in IndyCar and, and Formula One in roles in the agency side, on the corporate sponsor, on the brand side, as well as the race team property side. So I got to see the sport from many different perspectives, which which did add value uh, to each of those different uh, different groups, quite honestly. So my world was really about when a brand like Mercedes or Eli Lilly or 3M was looking to sponsor or get involved in the sport to either you know launch a product or what have you it was my role to help them build a strategy around the sponsorship to bring that brand to life in a way that would be credible and authentic and relevant to the consumer and help them drive either return on investment more business loyalty differentiation whatever that goal might have been Okay, so when we think about NASCAR, for example, as an organization, and you're adding value by connecting them to these corporate sponsors and so on. So if you weren't there, what would be missing for them? What wouldn't they have if you weren't working with them? Well, that that's a, another interesting perspective, because when people look at racing in general, and you look at the race cars, and they think about the fuel that it takes to get those cars on the track, oftentimes people think about, well, Sunoco fuel, right? You know, it, it's about get the fuel in, in the car. The reality is that there's another type of fuel that is needed in the sport, and that's financial fuel. That's the sponsorships. So that was the work that I did. If I hadn't been in those roles, and there are many other people who do similar types of work, then those brands, those corporate brands, aren't going to see the return they're looking for, right? They're not going to be investing in the sport, which then allows the teams to go out and do what it is that they do week in, week out. You see, NASCAR is very different than any other professional sport. You see, other professional sports, if you look, I'm, I'm here in Charlotte, North Carolina, so I'll take uh, the Hornets or the Panthers, for example, right? They don't have a lot of corporate sponsors because they have a stadium and they can generate revenue through, you know, tickets and concessions and all these different things. The race teams don't. So they rely on sponsors. That's their lifeblood. That's why the role I had and, you know, worked on through my career was a vital, a vital piece in that and that team. Well, Mike, I think that most business people can certainly understand that finances are the fuel to the business in a large way. Without yeah. that, you're out of business. You're not going anywhere, so to speak. You're not going to be able to race around anybody's track. So like you said earlier, Mike, I know you worked for NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One, Roush Fenway Racing, and so on. What's the difference between all of these racing organizations? What's the same? What's different about them? And what's the same or different about leading in any other industry? You mentioned the difference with other sports, meaning that the sponsorship is so important. So tell us a little bit about other differences. The differences that we found in our sport uh, aren't really too dissimilar to what corporate leaders experience in regular business. I'll show you why and what I mean by that is, you know, when I worked for Roush Fenway Racing, we had a product. And our product was the race team on the track every week. And we were graded 
buyer performance every week, just as corporate leaders are based on how their products are doing in the marketplace. And it was, you know, a challenge though, because there are certain things that are out of your control when it relates to things that are happening in the race. You may have, you may be leading the race and a tire blows out. You may be in contention to win and you get hit by somebody else and suddenly you're knocked out of the race. There's so many little variables that pop up. We, we find ourselves in, in these places where we're having to make you know, pivots and shifts with our competition, just as corporate executives may do with their marketing or their advertising or their their retail strategies on a, on a weekly basis, right? So it's not too different. The, the only difference is that, you know, our work was done on Sundays and Saturdays, <laughs> you know, um, at, at racetracks around the country. It was long hours on, on the weekends versus being home with our families. <laughs> That's a huge sacrifice right there for sure. You know, being yeah. able to work at these different times that are necessary because of the business that you were in. Yeah. So I know that you were working too with some of the brands that I would consider significant luxury brands, such as Mercedes Benz, for example. So let's talk about a luxury brand. What's different about a luxury brand? What do they have to do to keep up with excellence and quality? in the view of the consumer and how is that maybe a little different from just your everyday brand? I, I love that. There is a difference between being on top and being a challenger. And, and, and that's just in your mindset. When you're on top, like, like in Mercedes Benz, you are constantly on that tightrope of doing more, doing more than what's expected, thinking further down the line, like really focusing on how do we stay and continue to grow and, and maintain what we've it's taken decades to, to build in terms of a brand and reputation and the consumer perception and, and all of those different aspects. So for Mercedes, when I was doing work with them in IndyCar, it was really uh, about how do we use motorsports as a way to tell a story of competition and, and youthfulness. And that was important to the brand at the time, was really kind of tap into the fact that what they did on the racetrack translated over to what people experienced in their consumer car. There's a technology transfer. Now, on the flip side, if you're a challenger brand, you're scrappy, you're hungry, you're doing everything that you can do just to find an edge to get just a little bit closer to that leader that's in front of you. And that actually gives you more opportunity to take some chances. Whereas a Mercedes was very uh, risk averse, right? They would rather miss an opportunity, miss 10 opportunities and mess one up because they could hurt their reputation and brand. The challengers are like, forget it. We'll do whatever we can do and we'll, we'll roll the dice. Let's see what we can make happen. So really it was about the mindset and the approach and the attitude that the executives had. That's really a great characterization. I like the difference in how you describe it. It's kind of challenging in a sense to stay on top. It takes a lot of foresight, a lot of proactive action. And like you say, one of the risk factors is to become risk averse, which in a sense is the opposite too of what you want to do in order to revitalize your brand. Whereas when you're the challenger, you can go all kinds of different directions and you're not maybe messing up as much history or whatever as the luxury brand might. 
I used to live in Germany. And so when I lived there, there were so many cars. Mercedes Benz was, you know, the Mercedes was the car to have high performance. And particularly in Germany on the Autobahn, you could drive really fast and they drove fast very well. Well Well-made cars that would last forever. My husband was a Mercedes man for years and years and years. He would get one Mercedes, get the next, get the next, and so on and so forth. Because of that commitment, I would say, to a car that was going to last and was going to be well-made. So I have a question for you. When Mercedes-Benz decided to move a lot of their operation over to the United States, maybe not be in Germany where there's this sense of precision and excellence in how things are done in the society in general, not just at Mercedes-Benz, culture and background. And we know we think about the German culture for precision, for speed, for excellence well-made vehicles that last. The United States is kind of more of a throwaway society in a sense. (laughs) When Mercedes-Benz moved a lot to the U.S., what did they encounter? What were some of the challenges or difficulties? What shifted for them from your perspective? Culture is the biggest part of that. You know, it, it's, it is culture and it's, it's a respect for the heritage without a doubt. And that is something that is instilled within Mercedes Benz, whether, you know, it was in Mercedes Benz USA or it was back in, in Germany. So the culture was bridged in a couple different ways. Um, there were, were many American executives that were working in Germany. So they were immersed in that culture and understood you know, the, the, the heritage, the, uh, the focus on brand and quality and what was expected, where the, the expectations were. Uh, and on the flip side here in the U.S., there, there were many German executives that came over and were in the offices here and working right along their American counterparts. And, and I wouldn't say, you know, there to ensure that the culture and, and all continued, but, you know, their presence meant a lot. Their presence meant a lot. And, and for, for the, the executives that I worked with, it was a very different culture. You know, when, when they would refer to their, the, the race director as the race boss, we don't use that word here that often in, in American business culture of your title is the, you know, racing boss. It was literally on the business card, boss. It was, it's interesting in this little, little nuances like that, but it was definitely something that in the U.S. side, that the American executives held very close to their heart and wanted to make sure that they were maintaining at every step. Actually, I love that term you use, a culture bridge, and mm-hmm. thinking about the exchange that goes across the pond, so to speak, that the American executives would go to Germany, the German executives would come here, and you have an exchange of that culture so that you're recreating it to some large extent as well so that it lives on and doesn't necessarily have to physically be in the country of Germany to have some of the same qualities is what I'm hearing you say. So that's intentional. That's very intentional work to make sure that that culture bridge and that transfer actually happens, that it actually occurs. Yeah. And, and finding the right people. Not, not everyone's going to be the right fit when, when it comes down to getting the work done and the work in there was also focused on maintaining the culture. And, and it's okay. That was one of the lessons we learned, you know, is that it's okay. Not everyone is going to, to be here. Maybe there is another place, but it was so focused on that, that that was a big determining factor for a lot of uh, people's work. I love that. So it's culture and also who's on the bus. You know? right. And some people don't need to be on that Mercedes bus. <laughs> so, there are a lot of buses out there, Dr. Karen. Right. It's okay. You know, 
Exactly. You could go to a different company. Right. <laughs> so let me shift gears a little bit and talk about a brand such as Tylenol. We know mm -hmm. that some years ago, Tylenol went through the Tylenol scare. We've talked a lot about that on the Voice of Leadership in the past. And when they went through this and some Tylenol was tainted and some people were harmed and died and so on, and nobody knows completely the backstory and everything that happened. But right. what I do remember at that time was that Tylenol, they took some bold steps and actions. They removed all the product from the shelves. They replaced products to consumers in their homes who had purchased Tylenol. They got on the news. They gave updates. They told the truth about situations. And all of this, I'm sure, makes a difference in terms of how we perceive the brand today. Even though they had that crisis, we don't see them as a disaster company or anything like that. So I know your, your specialty is branding. So talk to us a little bit, not only Tylenol, yes, and maybe there's some other companies that had crises. What did you do? How do you come alongside them? What else are those really premier brands doing that maybe others don't do? What's the contrast? What's the difference? Yeah. Can I, can I take a step back on, yes. on the first part of that? Because what you opened with, with the Tylenol scare that occurred with the product tampering uh, is something that is actually uh, should be celebrated more. And I know that there were case studies written on this for, for various uh, executive business schools, but having the opportunity to have worked alongside them uh, and, and guided them in, in their, their motorsports programs. One of the great honors I've had throughout my career is being able to work alongside and inside with many of these amazing brands and getting to know the people and more importantly, the culture and the heritage. So what James Burke did when he, he was the, the CEO at the time when, when that happened, that company was losing market share overnight, as, as you can imagine. And it really was a moment that was going to either make or break that company, that American institution. And, and I often use this, this story of what James Burke did um, when I'm working with, with clients now. And I ask him, you know, what's your Tylenol moment? Or is this your Tylenol moment? Because what he, what James did was he took a situation and absolutely like flipped an industry on its side. So not only did they do the right thing in the market by removing products, they were communicating tirelessly, being transparent with everything they knew uh, on, on a timely basis, keeping timelines. But he also had a team of engineers working overtime to figure out how can we recreate a bottle Right? How can we be part of a solution that will help an industry, not just ourselves, how can we for this moment be bigger than ourselves, although the, the spotlight is shining on us? And that's what they did when they created that tamper-proof bottle. It became the industry standard and it saved that organization. So, you know, when, when you ask about uh, how how I've helped organizations through crisis and, and a lot of the crisis work that I've done has been dealing with uh, driver deaths, uh, may have been fan injuries, it could be sponsor bankruptcies, it could be drivers being knuckleheads on, on national TV and saying things that you're like, oh my gosh, how and why did you just say that, right? And, and picking up pieces after the fact. But a lot of the things that James Burke did 
in that situation hold true. And I, I've been a student of his and what they did. And the key thing and all that, Dr. Karen, first and foremost, is communication, transparency, right? And ownership, ownership. How often do you see somebody get on, on the TV and they, they acknowledge what's happened, but they don't own the actions themselves, right? They don't own the actions. They'll just say, this is what happened and uh, we're going to get better. You know, that's just half of the equation. You, you really have to own it, acknowledge that, and then tell people, this, these are the steps we're going to take to make sure this doesn't happen again. These are the checks and balances we're going to put into play moving forward. This is how we're going to use this as our Tylenol moment to be better, to get better for ourselves, our key stakeholders, our consumers. Now, you, you just pulled me right back into my crisis mode <laughs> voice in there, you know, but that's those are really the steps that you have to take. Actually, I love that part about the ownership because it's taking ownership that engenders a sense of trust in the people who are listening. Yes. And you can say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. If you never take ownership, you miss that trust opportunity. So I think that's really huge what you just said. I also like something else you said. The uh, CEO did a whole bunch of brilliant things as far as communication and so on along the way. However, thinking more broadly, not just about themselves, not just getting insular, but thinking about how can we make the industry better, getting outside of himself, having a broader view. And I think when you take that broader view, there's more room for innovation, you know, more room to come up with solutions that you otherwise might not come up with. When you get insular, you kind of get tunnel vision and it's harder to think of, you know, a broader way to, to operate to. So when they came out with the tamper-proof bottles, it didn't just help them. Like you said, it helped a whole industry to be better and to be right. safer. And they saw this, it, in other words, they leveraged the crisis for an opportunity that was beneficial. 1000%. I often say, and I truly believe this, that, that opportunity is often disguised as adversity. And it just takes someone or a team of people to look through it and past it to figure out, okay, not, you know, where is the opportunity in here? And, and, and I want to be super clear because there's opportunity and there's opportunistic, right? And in business, we often see people trying to become opportunistic in times of opportunity. I'm speaking specifically to the idea of, of an opportunity to take an industry to the next level. Now, what would have been super cool and amazing. How, how cool would this have been in the media, but just in general? Well, what if Bayer came over at that time and said, hey, we want to help you. We want to help you with the R&D for this new bottle, because you know what? That could have happened to us. It could have as easily been us as it was you. What can we do as leaders in an industry to come together, right? Yeah, cool I love that because that's partnership right there. Right? And it's And it's, you know, and like you said, it could have been us. And so, yeah, that bringing all of the resources to bear on an issue that affects everyone in the industry, for sure. That's a great uh, picture. That's a great example. And I actually love it. And I'm so glad you pointed out the difference between opportunity and opportunistic. We're so used to organizations being opportunistic, and that is not the same thing at all. And no. so that's a good distinction, you know, certainly to make. You also said, Mike, you said that, you know, sometimes going back to sort of like the race car world, that sometimes maybe a driver might get out there on the news and say something crazy or whatever that's not helpful. 
we know about the Tylenol thing because that was out in the news, very public stories have been written about it for years. What's an example of the kind of thing that could happen? Let's say a driver does say something crazy in the news. How does that get leveraged for an opportunity that could somehow some good could come out of it? Yeah, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll share with you a story, Dr. Karen, that, um, it, it, it didn't necessarily turn out so well for that driver. It did turn out very well for a driver by the name of Jimmy Johnson, who, uh, if you follow the sport, uh, had a sponsor by the name of Lowe's Home Improvement, one of the longest running sponsorships in the sport's history. They won seven championships together. But that may not have happened had it not been for a driver who was previously driving for Lowe's and they were a client of ours at an agency and there was a couple of incidents, Dr. Karen, where, you know, he got out of the race car after an accident. And one of the things about motorsports that people love is the emotion that the drivers have, right? That they show on TV. It's just a grit and anger. They might be trying to like grab and fight the other driver. You don't really see that in other professional sports where the quarterback goes to the sideline after being intercepted and, and the camera's not in their face going, what happened? But in NASCAR, you have it. So in this case, this driver got uh, in an accident, TV camera went up to him and said, hey, what was going on out there? And he said, I don't know, nobody would draft with me. It's like I had AIDS or something. Oh, okay. Um, now, bear in mind that this driver has their sponsor's logos all over them, has Lowe's on there. Well, the following weekend, we talked to the driver and say, hey, you know, you, you really can't say that at all. It's not appropriate, let's, let's work on this. Little uh, spokesperson training. A couple weeks later, similar thing, gets into an accident, gets out of the car, he's angry, camera gets in his face, and they say, what happened? He goes, I don't know, they're driving around like a bunch of, and he used the R word in there. And little did he didn't know, but at the time, Lowe's was the largest corporate sponsor of the Special Olympics. And literally within a couple of weeks, he was gone. He was, they said, we can't have this. We can't have him representing our brand. I mean, that's, that's how delicate and intricate and quick things can change based on what people say, impacting reputation. So anyhow, they got rid of that driver. And shortly thereafter, they found this young unknown by the name of Jimmy Johnson, who went on to uh, greatness within the sport. <laughs> well, you know, I think this is a cautionary tale. It just lets yeah. us know that we have to be brand representative at all times. You're not ever off duty, so to speak. You're always speaking for your brand, no matter where you are, what you say, and it makes it, and people are listening and they're connecting the dots. And so if who you're representing doesn't like what you're saying or the dots get connected in a way that's problematic, wow, you, you lose opportunity then. You lose well, opportunity. You, you lose opportunity. You can lose your job these days. I mean, there's so many, so many things that can go sideways so quickly, especially in today's world where we are, you know, it's unlike any other time, Dr. Karen, and I know it sounds cliche, but, but it's true. We, we, the world we're in has never been as, as, as connected and hyper-connected as we are today. And I'm a big believer when, when I, I speak with, with different executives uh, and, and, and such that, 
it's not the company that that builds the reputation. It, it, the reputation is built on the shoulders of every single person who represents that company. So to your point is that you're not just representing your brand, you're representing the brand for which you work. Absolutely, which really, hopefully you think of as your brand too, because you're part of it, you know, in exactly. that sense. Otherwise, maybe you might not want to be there want to be with a brand that you can represent or that you do believe in on some level. So that's a great story. That was very helpful just to sort of unpack it, break it down into something visible we could all see and pay attention to. So thank you for sharing that picture. Can I I just add the PS to that? So about about four years ago, I was in Daytona. Now, Now, this all happened back in the late 90s, early 2000s, okay? I was in Daytona Beach, Florida about four years ago on some business and I was down by NASCAR's headquarters and I, I was I was at a, a local sandwich shop and I was eating outside between meetings and up walks that driver and I'm like, hey, man, you know, I started talking to him and he, we, we were catching up and I said, you know, you remember that? And he's like, I, I do, I remember that. And he goes, you know, um, I didn't really have much of a filter. And I, and I said, but you know, that really isn't an excuse, right? And he goes, I know, I know it's not. <laughs> but it was interesting. To this day, he still thinks about that. Oh, I hope he learned something from it. Those are the kind of lessons we want to learn from and move forward in a different way. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Otherwise, then the experience is wasted if we don't get to learn something from it and to be able to show up differently after the experience. That's right. That's right. So we've been talking about crises, you know, like the Tylenol situation or crises such as drivers saying things on the news. We were talking about luxury brands like Mercedes-Benz. What about the big box stores? People like the Walmarts of the world, Lowe's Home Improvement. What's important to them? And what do you do for them that's either the same or different than what you might do, let's say, for the more luxury brands? Yeah, so so we'll, we'll take Walmart as an example. Walmart, when we were doing work with them, was very focused, as they still are today, with, with the EDLP, right? The acronym Everyday Low Pricing. And, and for them, that was vital to their relationship with their customers. And we had to build a, a, a program or in racing around this idea of EDLP and customers first. So what that presented us with an opportunity to do with the executives, and and they they were all for this, is, you know, how could Walmart continue to be a resource, not just during the week for families in the community, but how could they be the place to be ready and get ready for the big race and races over the weekend. So that was a, a situation where the program that we created really was about events and activities happening at the Walmart stores themselves in race markets. So we had the opportunity to to really get the race fans who were looking for their supplies or the families who lived in the community looking for their chips or their drinks or whatever it might be. And we put together a dynamic program where we brought in other race team sponsors 
like M&Ms, you know, and Hefty, uh, Ballpark, Franks, like all those brands that are in Walmart, but were in racing and created these very cool activations for families and kids that that really brought excitement to to the Walmart uh, stores themselves. And, and they saw that there was, you know, literally the year over year uh, spikes in, in revenue um, there at the store in those key categories was undeniable of how it was helping lift the business. No question. That's a fabulous example. What I love about it is it's really a win-win scenario that you're talking about. So both entities really get a chance to benefit from the partnership. That's ideal. When you can create that, that's really a sweet spot in terms of a sponsorship. And it, it was it was the trifecta. Quite honestly, you had you had Walmart that was happy because it was it was getting the foot traffic that it desired. You had the consumer that was getting the EDLP and the opportunity to meet their drivers because they would do appearances and sign autographs. And then the sponsor in the sport, like. M&M Mars or Hefty or others were, were getting the lift at retail that was helping to justify the investment in the sponsorship itself. So it really was, when you talk about an ecosystem I mentioned earlier for the sport, it was, it was helping so many uh, on, on numerous levels. It was an exciting program to be part of, quite honestly. Yeah, that really does sound exciting just hearing about it and hearing how you can make a difference by thinking in the ways that you're referring to here today. Yeah. So I know that you're also an award-winning executive for all of this work that you were doing with these companies and these organizations. So tell us about some of the awards that you've won, how you got them, and so on. Oh, gosh. This is, I am not comfortable speaking <laughs> about this kind of stuff, Dr. Karen. You know, you know me. You know me. Um, That's why I'll ask you uh, about it. And give you a chance to tell okay. us about it. <laughs> okay, I I, I I appreciate that. You, uh, oh goodness. So uh, speaking of Tylenol, uh, the the program that I was a part of and had the opportunity to to help you know lead and and lead with other wonderful executives as to, as well. There, there's never one person who's done everything. We all know that, especially as leaders. But for the the racing program that we developed. Uh, that, that was uh, around, you think about Tylenol and its, its promise about pain relief. And we created a whole program around make pain go fast. Right? Mm. Think about that for racing and, and you know, make pain go fast. So the program that we did actually uh, was one of the top three awards for the James Burke uh, award within Johnson and Johnson, which recognized global marketing campaigns, not just within Tylenol, but within Johnson and Johnson as well globally. So we were, we were uh, in the top three, uh, one of the top three for that award, which was uh, very humbling, very humbling, uh, w- without a doubt. And then when I was working for Nextel, was r- running their marketing communications when Nextel took over for Winston as the series sponsor, where it went from the the Winston Cup series to the Nextel Cup series. That was an amazing. Uh, opportunity there it was a 750 million dollar sponsorship at the time the largest uh, sponsorship in sports history and uh, we won a number of different awards you know w- for the work there but one that I was near and dear to my heart was through the public relations society of america um, being a, a pr guy at, at heart uh, recognizing uh, us for uh, for one of their their highest awards uh, for communication strategy um, and and consumer engagement so that was uh, th- th- just a couple right there i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna stop there i hope that's enough 
<laughs> well, that gives us a flavor for it. Yes. And, yeah. you know, it just says that people want to celebrate that which is really helping them and yeah. that's making a difference and that they wouldn't have thought of on their own. And so it just shows that the work that you were doing with these organizations was so valuable, was so useful because people don't give awards just for no reason, there has to be a value add that they see. So thank right. you for right. giving us the information about it. And, and and thank you for making me feel better with that that last part about saying all of that. So <laughs> it is it's a team of people that worked their tails off and put their hearts and everything into these programs. As a lot of leaders know that to to be recognized doesn't just happen, you know. So you know, it was definitely a testament to the team of people I had the chance to work with. Absolutely. I'm sure that's true. So I want you to think, Mike, for a second. Think about your background. Think about your upbringing. What would you say that it prepared you for these corporate roles that you've had? What in your backstory brought you to those kinds of jobs and those kinds of impacts? Oh, that's a good one. It's a good one. So I'm going to take you back to when I was I was a child and my dad was a motorhead and his buddies were all motorheads and they would be always working on their cars and they would race and you know so I grew up around motorsports the irony is that I, I was as a kid could never give my dad the right wrench or the right tool that he was looking for it was just you know and and I was just I was just that kid I couldn't I was not mechanically inclined so what ended up coming out of that though and this gets to the what i really believe um helped me and continues to help me quite honestly um, and, and i really really believe this is i learned two key things by by not being able to give my dad the right tools i had to observe and anticipate I had to observe what he was doing and then anticipate what was coming next. So it would give me time to go find what it is that I needed to find and get him the right. Because I wanted to make him proud. I wanted to give him the right tool. But I, I really I carried that. I, I really believe unknowingly, unwittingly, quite honestly, Dr. Karen, into my career of observing and anticipating what's what's not just happening next, but what what is next two, three things. Like I had a game where I would try to like lay out the next four tools that my dad was going to need so I could just be there and just hand it to him, right? And him be like, how did you know? I've been watching, you know, and I'm thinking ahead. So that to me, I think is really what's helped me and continues to quite honestly. Well, in fact, I mean, think back, thinking back now to your executive life in, in the corporate world, mm -hmm. how did you use that ability mm -hmm. to great effect? Yeah, that was without a doubt when it came to crisis management, public relations or or in marketing, I was always always the person in the room that when the plan was laid out, I was like, "Awesome, I love it." But then, what? Or what if? I remember, that was one of my big friends, well, what if? Have we thought through what could be? So, I was always trying to help our team, our leaders see around that next corner. Because often if you think about what happens, people are focused, they get a task, they're told to put a plan together and how are we gonna get there? Get us from point A to point B as quickly as we can, most efficiently, effectively, it's gonna drive the best return in revenue for us. That's great. And people will do that and they'll try to follow that straight line. But 
What are the contingencies? What haven't we thought about? What should we be thinking of? What's happening in, in the in the climate around us and the environment that maybe we're we're thinking too insular, right? Is this product going to be tone deaf in the marketplace because of something that's going on? Like, what are those things? So that's where it really helped me help me stand out as someone who was thinking more through the process, not just the product. I actually love that because, you know, your clients may not have always been thinking about two, three, 10 moves down the line or being proactive in their thinking. And for you to help them anticipate and consider options and possibilities and some worst case scenarios and other kind of scenario planning, that's very valuable. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I'm not, you know, I wasn't the doom and gloom guy, you know, it wasn't that it was, just, it no. was very much the, well, let's, let's kind of look at it from this side. Let's look at it from that side. You know, how would this audience receive this message? Would it be appropriate? Is it going to have them leaning, right? All those different pieces that um yeah it, it was it was fun for me and and, and something that that i enjoy doing because it does it, it is proactive it and is. it does help in many cases get us to a different place or have some contingencies that if something were to happen oh we've thought about it, it it's it's not the what now exactly it's definitely the opposite of doom and gloom you have doom and gloom when you haven't thought about what could possibly happen and now right. you're in the middle of it However, if you've thought about it in advance, you've planned in advance, and you've considered possibilities, you avoid doom and gloom and essence. Yeah, Yeah, exactly right. Or at least can say if somebody were to question, how did this happen? Well, you know what? We thought about X, Y, and Z, and this is why we went down this path. Oh, okay, great. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. You Exactly. So, Mike, suppose that there's someone in my audience who is an executive. They're an executive in a less well-known corporation. We've been talking about well-known businesses and entities today. What are a couple of little secret strategies that you might share with the everyday business leader about how that person can think or operate in such a way that they elevate even their brand, which is not a household name yet? There is power Dr. Karen, in looking up, you know, we, we, we look up to people, right? You know, there, there are people that in our lives that we'll look up to, uh, they, they could be someone, maybe want to emulate them, you know, or there are things about them that we like, maybe not everything, but there are things that they've done that we respect and, and, and appreciate. And, and I don't think businesses are that different, quite honestly, that if you're a, a young brand, We'll just take that for an example. If you're a young challenger brand, there's nothing wrong with looking at a leader in, in your category or a leader in the industry that you admire the work they've done and the, and the brand they've built, a type of process or customer service. Look at those attributes. Look at the things that made them successful. How can you take a couple of those pieces that would work for you in your culture and within your team or leadership? That's one area that I would really encourage uh, leaders and and, and you know, emerging organizations to think through. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to become them, that you're a wannabe. It's recognizing success points because I really believe that success leaves clues. We just have to take the time to look for them. So that's one thing I, I would offer up. And, and I, I really believe the other, the other part is just, you know, to continue to be inquisitive, right? And continue to be intentional. 
in the work that you're doing. It's often very easy for us to become reactive and on the hamster wheel of just go, 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 checklist, checklist, checklist. Hey, we're busy, we're getting things done. Yeah, but you know, busyness doesn't equal impact. So maybe try to look at the distinction between what's keeping you busy versus what's driving impact for your brand. I love that. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm going to ask. <laughs> more? <you>. More? Haven't <laughs> <laughs> so, I been on the spot enough? I love it. I uh, love it. I'll put you on the spot in this way. So Please. I want you to think about a brand that you've thought about and what's something, a brand that you wanted to emulate in some point. And what have you incorporated personally in how you lead and operate today? Hmm. That is a fantastic question. I, it's interesting to, and for my work today, because I, I am, I am the brand, I am the company as a, as a speaker, you know, I, I look at other speakers quite honestly. And, you know, that ranges from Anthony Robbins to uh, Ed Miletta, Gary V to, you know, Zig Ziglar, uh, you know, I mean, going across the board for me, I'm a student of the craft and I really learned that from racing that you can, you can focus on going fast all day long, but that's only going to, only going to last for so long. But if you're really a student of the car or of the engine, then you're going to continually find ways to innovate and evolve, which keeps you fresh and relevant, competitive to win. And I feel the same way with speaking in the work that I'm in now, I really am in the a phase of, I'm confident in my message and I really want to work on that craft of the delivery of the art of, of watching these other like bigger than life people and how they go about authentically delivering a message. That's, that's really hitting people in the heart in a place that's changing lives. So what's one thing you've sort of moved over from one of those people you admire? Hmm. <laughs> I would say, I would say, quite honestly, getting comfortable with being myself and, and using my voice, you know, for for years in racing and, and maybe some of your viewers and, and listeners can can relate to this. Maybe this resonates for them is that, you know, in the corporate world, we, we put armor on every day and we're weighed down by this armor to protect ourselves, to protect, you know, our, our hearts, uh, our authenticity, uh, and, and it prevents that from coming through. And, you know, for me to speak with an authentic voice that's mine, that I'm comfortable with, I took that away from all of the, the people I had mentioned, from Zig Ziglar to Anthony Robbins, Gary Vee, I mean, down to the local levels of of speakers is the only way that you're going to be um, impactful is to be authentic and be comfortable with yourself. And that that's not just for a speaker, Dr. Cowan, you know this to be true, even for leaders, the authenticity, the, the freedom that brings, right? That that's powerful in, in my, in my opinion, in my heart. We are actually the most powerful people when we are being who God created us to be. <laughs> so that's me. Yes. I mean, yes. he's already got people in some other lanes. For each of us, we have unique giftings. We have a unique combination. And if we show up authentically as all of that, then we can do what God has purposed for us to do in our lives. So yeah, I'm with you on that. As far yeah. as leadership, yes. Yeah. Yes. And and that that taps into, oh, I, I love where you just went with that because there's something that uh, I believe we all have within us, and it's our DNA. 
And, and it's, it's not our X and Y chromosomes, right? It, it's, it's our divine natural abilities. The things that we were designed and created to do that nobody else, nobody else in this world can do like you can, like I can. And it's when we recognize and embrace that DNA, the things that we do, like it's breathing, that's where the magic happens. You're exactly right. That's where we're living in, in a space where we were, we were really, and again, intentionally built to, to live in and, and, and be and share. And, and oh, okay, I, I can go on and on with this, but that's, it, it's, um, it, it's a special place that I believe I'm seeing more leaders in corporate America being more comfortable stepping into. Mm -hmm. And that's a good day, but more I, people I believe are starting it. to do that. So yeah, that's a take home point right there. The DNA, your divine natural abilities. I have to say that again. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Mike, how can people get a hold of you? How can they reach you? You know, what's the website or anything else you want to share with with the audience about how they can stay in touch or getting it? Well, thank, thank you. you so much for for offering that, Doctor Karen. So, I, you know, being a brand guy, I like to make things very, very simple. Okay, so if uh, your viewers, listeners want to email me, Mike at mikemooney dot com. Mike at MikeMooney.com. And if you want to go to my website and check out more there, you can go to www.MikeMooney.com. <laughs> I love it. Keeping it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. Keep a simple, smart person. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And to all those out there, we will be putting that information in the show notes as well. So if you didn't capture it as you're listening right now, look for it in the show notes. And then Mike, you also, your book that you've written, say again, the title of the book, how people can get a hold of the book. Of course. So the, the book is called Reputation Shift. And you can buy that uh, at Amazon. You can buy that uh, at my website as well. Uh, if you go through the website, I'll, I'll per I personally sign it for people. Also, you can get it on audiobook uh, as well. Uh, so a lot of different ways that, that you can get it. And um, it, it's really, you know, uh, it, it's a roadmap or a toolbox for people that are, are really interested in building, protecting and strengthening one of their greatest assets, you know, and that's their reputation, but doing it in a proactive way. I outline strategies from my experience and stories and racing that help bring it to life. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank so, you. Mike, as we're wrapping up, what additional, I say additional because you've shared lots of words of wisdom. So what additional words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? I would share this. You know, we are, we are living and working and operating in a world and at a time where there's no playbook. And a lot of leaders that I've been speaking with and, and working with uh, are, are facing anxiousness, not just themselves, but, but their teams. And in order to keep driving the business forward, it takes a leader to have the confidence to stay that course or you know, try something that may be new because the environment is, is moving them to a place where they have to adapt their business practices. So I keep, uh, I'm very big on, on, vi on visual anchors, Dr. Karen, I think you'd appreciate that. And, and I have um, index cards on my, all over my desk. Uh, one of them that I would share with your, with your viewers that I think uh, really drives this point home uh, is a simple four words that, that I've used from day one when I've been out here doing my work. Intentional action drives clarity. 
Intentional action drives clarity. What I mean by that is we may not know what step five, six, and seven are, and this has been my experience, but I do know that if I take step one and go to step two, that suddenly the people, the resources, the the ideas, the answers start to show up that get me to step four, five, six, that bring this vision to life. So I would just encourage your fans, your community, stay true to the vision, but don't keep yourself held back by thinking you've got to have all the steps right away. Take that first step intentionally. Yeah, that's really powerful. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here and sharing all these pearls of wisdom. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with the audience. And so to the Voice of Leadership audience and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership audience, I want to just summarize a couple of things. There's so much in here. You're going to have to go back and listen to it again yourself to do your own summary. But I'll share just a few points that Mike has shared with us today. One aspect about this is that he said there is no playbook. So we're writing the playbook every day for what's next. And when you take that next step, that first action, it's been my experience that the light shines on the step that comes after that. Now, if you don't take the first step, you won't see any other steps. So that's a tough place to be. So I'm really glad that Mike shared that with us because that's pretty powerful. He also talked about the fact that each of us has our divine natural abilities, the DNA. Love that. Make sure you're operating in the zone of your genius, your excellence, your strength that you're bringing to the table. And when we're talking about partnerships out there with organizations, we're talking about finding that trifecta of success. What's going to be the win-win-win for all the different stakeholders who are part of the process? And I love this whole notion with Tylenol in the race world of making pain go fast. So there are ways that we can partner with others to have outcomes that are beyond what we would have otherwise thought about. And I also really want to highlight that Mike said you can learn some things from your background. Take time to look back and see what did you learn back in the day? He learned to observe and to anticipate, which helps him to think with his clients about what's coming down the road next. How can they do better scenario planning? How can they be proactive and think about things that you might not think about on your own? Now, that's just a subset of what Mike said. So, <laughs> so much wisdom in today's episode. So I hope that you're taking something, a kernel of wisdom away for yourself. And as we close out today's episode, I want to share a reading. This is about racing, but it's not about car racing, but it's about racing anyway. And no matter what kind of race you're going to be in, you've got to be prepared. You got to do some preparation. You've got to have some discipline. So this is a reading from 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 24 and 25. And it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do it for an imperishable crown. So as you run your race out there today, think for the long haul, the long game, not just for today. Think about the imperishable, the long-lasting, living leadership legacy results that you are leaving behind 
for others, not just for yourself. And join us again when we do part two of this interview with Mike Mooney. See you next time. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.